Blog Talk Radio. Music always makes me feel like uh, getting the Ting Shaws out and uh, just doing some sort of belly dance movement or sitting on the back of a camel loping across the desert. Uh, I just like to start off the show with that. Um, well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, friends and colleagues. Uh, uh, as I say, no matter where you are and when you're listening, welcome, welcome back. I uh, appreciate your listener loyalty. And today I have returning to the show uh, Beth Bartlett, and uh, we're going to be talking about how the burning times trauma lives on. And uh, Beth was on the show back, uh, I think it was February 15th, I hope you'll check the archives, and we talked about restoring sisterhood, and um, I think the topics were so relevant, and I enjoyed her chat so much, I invited her back for this very important Uh, timely, relevant topic. Uh, She is a PhD, an educator, author, activist, spiritual companion, and, um, you know, as uh, she returns to the show today discussing how the burning times of yesteryear actually still affects women today, I'll ask her about uh, this historical trauma, how it operates in the world, why healing from trauma requires a spiritual response. Uh, We'll delve into feminist spirituality a bit maybe and how that movement is a a valuable part of this healing, uh, particularly the reclaiming of the imminence of the divine. So there's lots to talk about today. And um, Beth, welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thank you, Karen. Glad to be here. Well, um, let's just jump in. I know we have a lot to talk about. And uh, just in case, you know, there are people who have been under a rock somewhere (laughs) or just need a refresher, what were the burning times? Right, right. And I think a lot of people actually don't know about the burning times. They might know it as the witch hunts, um, but at least in the feminist community, it's known as the burning times. It's hundreds of years, hundreds of years, from the 13th to the 18th centuries, primarily the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, in Europe, where vast numbers of the peasant populations of Northern Europe were accused of witchcraft, imprisoned and tortured and burned alive. Um, The estimates of the numbers of those killed varies from 60,000 to 9 million, so quite a disparity, Um, but everybody agrees that about 85% of those killed were women. 
And who did they target besides women? Um, well, I mean, there were some men. It was largely the, the healers, um, people who were different. Um, so the poor primarily, I would say, and um, and the peasant population who who were considered to be non-believers of of the you know the established establishment faith, but actually um, they were believers in their own faith traditions. So let me ask you, you know, I've I've read a lot and heard a lot and uh about the burning times and you know, I've read stuff like uh, you know, it became a cottage industry with uh, you know, people traveling right. the countryside looking for witches. I've heard that it yeah. had something to do with the male physician establishment uh seeing Absolutely. these women healers as competition. Um, it mm-hmm. you know it was a cor- of course about religion maybe to stamp out the goddess. Um, it was maybe quite just, the industry uh, as well for lawyers. <laughs> so the revenue talk about for lawyers. that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, talk about oh, the just, cottage industry and and why they were after women. What was the you know what, what was the motivation for this gender side as I call it? Right. Um, well, you can go back to the origins in terms of the Black Plague um, that that was spreading throughout Europe during that time. Um, and women were often targeted as the cause of that. Um, they Women tend to have better immune systems. Women tend, as is true of COVID, um, Men are more susceptible to it than women. That's, that's one. And women um, women tended to live longer. That was suspect. Um, so there is that. But in terms of the cottage industry, what you're talking about, um, in terms of why were women targeted, and in terms of the church and the medical profession, women were um, largely in uh, largely those who were engaged in midwifery and were healers were women and um, those they were competition for a rising male medical establishment so um, and according to the teachings of the church women were supposed to bear children in pain and the midwives um, were the ones who were alleviating the pain of women in childbirth, making their births easier to ease that, and um, had also were dispensers of herbs, uh, including abortifacients, and uh, that was something the church was opposed to. Uh, so, I mean, in, in if you want to get into the whole um, demonization of women as as being the consorts of the devil was um, that was what underlay so much of the tortured confessions of of women who who came before the inquisitors and were burned at the stake um, that it was um, wrongly believed but widely propagated 
um, the Malleus Maleficarum that was written by two Jesuit fathers, um, second only to the Bible, was the most widely published um, volume on the the new the new invention of the printing press. And the Malleus Maleficarum means the hammer of witches. And it was to these two Jesuits who had laid out all the ways that women were um, susceptible to the devil, that they had brought evil and sin into the world, and they consorted with the devil and um, were inherently evil. So, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons from uh, competition to the bringers of evil into the world that women were targeted. So is there any way to know, I mean... Is there any way to know, I mean, has have any writings been uncovered to your knowledge that um, this was all just a big farce, the people behind it knew better, but uh, it was their agenda, you know, misogyny or, like you said, competition? I mean, I think about, you know, Republicans today going around spouting the big lie when they know darn well it's not true, but it serves their purposes. Um, do we have any idea if... Um, if that was uh, at play at all? I haven't seen any evidence of that. It certainly could have been. Um, yeah. If, if you read the, the writings of any of the the, the famous <laughs> church fathers from Augustine to Aquinas, um, they are all demonizing women. Um, so there's a long history of that yeah. in the church. Right. And just just the last thing about this, and then we'll move on to the next question. Um, Wasn't there something about ergot, the mold on wheat or something, that they blamed for some of what was going on during those times? Or am I confusing that with something else? It's not something I'm familiar with, but it's quite possible. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll just briefly say, you know, I read like the Salem Witch Trials, for instance, and they said some of them in Europe as well, that mold got on the wheat and um, caused hallucinations and, uh, you know, maybe made people say they were seeing things that they really didn't or whatever, you know, and uh, maybe that's a way to get these church fathers off the hook. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, in your essay, Remembering the Burning Times, uh, you talk about how the trauma from, you know, this happening way back then, um, you know, uh, is, you know, is, is women's historical trauma. Um, can you, can you talk about what you mean by historical trauma and women's historical trauma in particular? Sure. Uh, just a brief definition Historical trauma is any event or set of events that happens to a specific group of people who share an identity. Uh, I think we're familiar with that with regard to the genocide of Native Americans, um, what what the Jewish population experienced during the Holocaust, the trauma of African Americans in this country due to slavery. But in this case, the group is women, specifically European women, Um, But through colonization, imperialism, and conquest, that's carried on in other populations of women throughout the world. Um, It's carried from generation to generation through both genetic material, which is a rather new uh, 
discovery, and as well as social and cultural practices and behaviors. So it's just carried on century after century, and, and, generation after generation. And, and well, and I would venture to say, I mean, as long as we live in capitalism, um, and, I'm sorry, as long as we live in uh, patriarchy, uh, it yes. can it, it continues. I mean, wouldn't patriarchy be the maybe the main culprit? I would actually say yes. I would I would take the historical trauma back, way back, two thousand years, uh, five thousand years, seven thousand years to the beginnings of patriarchy, at least in Western culture. Um, so, yes, I would take it back that far to those those times in which. Um, the peaceable cultures um, were invaded and um, the men were killed, the women were were abducted and raped and um, and their their egalitarian lifestyles um, life ways were all, they were all of a sudden subject they were essentially slaves um, of the invader invading men. Um, so yes, I would definitely take it back thousands of years, um, and I think you can see that lived experience of that happening when you look at. I mean, within our historical records lifetime in this country, with the same thing happening to um, the indigenous populations in the Americas. What well, exactly would be a bridge to patriarchy happened. Well, and would it be a bridge too far to, well, I mean, you know, you think about the manifest destiny um, and, and now today right. with, um, you know, the Supreme Court uh, reversing Roe, um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's uh, it, it, I, oh, I don't know, I think continues. sometimes we have to, yeah, we have to sort of connect the dots for people, I think, because, you know, we, we throw around words like patriarchy, like we're, you know, uh, saying we're going to the grocery. Um, and I don't think um, women and men realize sometimes that what an evil it is and that it still lives today. They think it's a remnant of the past. So would it be okay if I go ahead and talk about how I see that the way that trauma lives on in yeah yeah, I mean, I, I'm, yeah exactly yeah. yeah please do yeah because i think okay. it's uh, uh it's connected thank you yeah yeah so i think there's so so many ways um i'm sure i won't cover them all but um just just in the the, the docility and submissiveness that was drummed into women at the time um in women's silencing and acquiescence in subordination, women are told to be silenced. Women's voices are ignored or punished. Um, in the 19th century, women in this country were branded uh, as promiscuous for just just for speaking in public. Um, and you see the extremes of it certainly in the women in Afghanistan and Iran um, today, uh, of literally being covered up in the, and the and women who spoke out in Iran were going to prison. Um, I, but in just in our ordinary, everyday lives in in the United States, anyway, I think pretty much all of us have had the experience of making a point in a meeting or other group setting and having our voices ignored. 
but when a man says the same thing, it's recognized and affirmed. Um, or I think of things like Rhianne Eisler's, um, the idea she put forth in The Chalice and the Blade, were basically ignored and dismissed. Um, but when Dan Brown used them in his Da Vinci Code, um, it became a bestseller, and those ideas were widely discussed. Um, or um, the, the women women not coming forward with rape, incest, intimate partner violence, sexual harassment, sexual abuse. They just, they're silent for the most part. If they do come forward, quite often they aren't believed, as was the case with all the female gymnasts um, in, you know, from the Olympics. Uh, what happened to Anita Hill and Christina Blasey Ford uh, when they came forward in the hearings for Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh. Um, or just the continued normalization of sexual assault, of intimate partner violence, um, the treatment of women in war, uh, the treatment of women in refugee camps, um, that, that that continues on. Um, I think you see it in the ongoing control of women's sexuality and reproductive capacities. Um, certainly we've seen that um, in the Dobbs decision the increasingly harsh penalties for abortion providers in this country strike me as a new as the new burning times. Um, you see it in the medicalization of birth in this country. Um, midwifery until quite recently was illegal in this country um, because male doctors replaced um, midwives during the burning times. I think you see it very, very evidently in the ongoing pornography industry. Um, if you ever pay any attention to the details of the tortures used in the witch burnings and the way that there was a tremendous sexual dimension to these, um, that they were incredibly sadistic, that there was gang rapes of jailed women during these times, the sexual abuse by the clergy, um, that you, you see that continuing in the sexual abuse of clergy, as, but, but the there are parallels between the tortures used in the witch burnings and what you, if you look at hardcore pornography, and I've only done it once to educate myself, um, they are exactly the same. Um, I think you see it in the demonization of women's bodies and sexuality, the ongoing shaming um, and lacking of freedom of sexual expression, um, just the abusiveness of purity culture, and I have, I have worked with so many women who have been harmed by purity culture, um, who whose bodies are considered shameful just by being female. That was that comes directly from the burning times. Um, the ongoing condemnation of women as sluts and whores, but also regarding women's bodies, especially BIPOC women's bodies, as rapeable. Um, I mean, I could go on, but some of the others, um, women's lack of trust in other women. I mean, during the burning times, women, in order to save their own lives, had to inform on other women. And they would just make things up with their friends and accuse their friends and their neighbors of witchcraft in order to save their own lives. But often um, that didn't work either. And so you have that legacy of women learning not to trust other women. Um, there's a, a new book out 
by a French woman named Mona Cholet uh, in defense of witches, the legacy of the witch hunts. Um, and she also talks about how the burning times just seeped into our collective unconsciousness and our unconscious, I should say. Um, and in ways like struggling with um, our bodies being sexual or creative, but also menopausal and aging because so many of the women who were targeted were old. Um, the fears of having different body anomalies like scars or birthmarks because at the time that would be a sign of being a witch. Um, the repression of intuitive spiritual and healing skills because of the condemnation of healers. Um, the fear of speaking our minds. Anyone who talked back or talked too loudly was subject to what was called the the witch the bridal um, uh, harness um, that that would it was a it was an instru- instrument of torture that either stretched the tongue or pricked the tongue for women who spoke too much. Um, any women who who decided who challenged the lives of men who were too independent um, were um, were targeted. So I I would just I would ask your listeners, you know, how have your own behaviors been constrained? How have you felt the need to adapt to the patriarchy? How have you been silenced, ignored, not believed? Um, and as you have written about in your book, suffered from abuse considered to be normal. I think all of those, and I'm sure there are more, but so many legacies of continuing to live in the wake of the trauma of the burning times. Uh, you know, Beth, uh, that list, <laughs> that list, yeah, I mean, um, uh, what a concise list. And like you said, I'm sure it's uh, uh, it, it's certainly probably not even complete. Um, and... Uh, and, and so just to just to sort of stress here, because we kind of glossed over it, um, mm-hmm. you feel that you know what happened, you know, all of these years ago lives on in our in our DNA, in our bodies, and right. our from one mm-hmm. generation to the next, because that might be yeah. a, a concept that's kind of hard for people to grasp. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But I think if 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 you think about it, is one thing. But I'm also thinking of how I first ex- started thinking about this as historical trauma. Was I would show um, a very famous film, uh, at least within the feminist community, um, called The Burning Times uh, in class to my students. And I would just see them become numb with terror um, because they they recognized this in their bones. It was something that resonated with them. They would often sit there with their just slowly tears rolling down their faces. This was, it was very familiar to them. So in some ways it's something that we know in our bodies in ways <clears throat> that we don't know in our conscious minds. Um, yeah. And so just bringing, bringing that out, I have experienced that with the discomfort that, um, that students have expressed to me 
and that I remember in myself when I first um, started using the term witch and started talking about uh, witches and witchcraft as something that was legitimate and okay to talk about. I had the witch Starcroft, Star, Star, sorry, Starhawk come to um, visit my classes from time to time. And there would be some discomfort. There'd be a lot of excitement, but among some that were raised in very fundamentalist religions, it was scary to them to think about being in the same room as a self-professed witch. Um, so, I mean, some of that stuff is uh, is really deep inside, and I think it's what you experience in your body and notice what, yeah. how your body responds to some of that. I get it. Well, and, and I want to get into the spiritual response to this, with which yeah. you think helps us heal. But before we go there, just briefly, um, you know, you mentioned your class. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but aren't women's studies classes like yours um, really an extremely short supply across the country? Oh, I mean, does the average student run, have the option to learn about this usually in school? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very short supply. Yeah, and becoming increasingly so. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad there are the books out there or just podcasts like this to inform people of this, to start um, raising people's awareness of how their own um, self-restraint, their own... um, making themselves smaller than they really are, their own um, acquiescence to domination, um, really has a long, long history going back hundreds of years. And and likewise, okay, let's flip that. Um, And, you know, I hope I'm not throwing you a curveball here. But if we can remember this uh, trauma in, uh, in, in our DNA, uh, do you think, likewise, um, this is how men continue to perpetuate their entitlement to dominate? Oh, of course, of course, yeah. That, that has that also has been passed along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So not, it's not a curveball. So, yeah. So. So why um, why do you think uh, the healing has to come from a spiritual response and not an educational or political response? Well, I think all three are necessary, actually. Um, but but to heal from it, um, so much of the harm that was done by the burning times was first and foremost an attack on women's spiritual practices, women's spiritual beliefs, women's spirituality, um, the goddess and earth-centered beliefs of the pagan population. And pagan simply means people who live in the country, rural people, um, the peasants. Um, that was what was attacked. Um, and they were demonized for these beliefs and practices that were core of their beings and Women died for these. Um, women were also accused um, by religious authorities. And so the, this 
notion of women being the source of evil and of consorting with the devil um, was all woven into religious dogma and beliefs that continue on to this day. Um, Many, many um, Christian churches anyway still teach about the inherent evil of women, of women's bodies, of women's sexuality. Um, Anne Wilson Schaaf wrote a book um, in which she talked about women needing to atone for the original sin of being born female. And uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, so, I mean, the whole notion of original sin didn't even exist until 400 years after um, after the birth of Jesus. Um, but, um, but nevertheless, we seem to think that it predated, uh, that it was, has been in existence for the duration. Um, but it became associated with Eve and women, and women are the cause of sin and evil in the world. Um, well, and you mentioned but, earlier uh, something about the purity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, what purity was culture? I don't think you... Purity culture. Purity culture. Can you, can you say a little bit about what that is? Oh, sure. Very damaging. Um, purity culture um, is a movement... I would say in more fundamentalist, typically evangelical, but not entirely evangelical, but fundamentalist um, Christian churches um, in which um, largely it's aimed at women, although I have spoken with at least one person that it included men, but mostly it's women, uh, young women, adolescents who are specifically taught in classes about um, the the potential evil in their bodies if if they become sexual outside of marriage and um, that they are to pledge to maintain their purity, to remain sexually pure, to not be touched or in any way that is sexual um, before they are married. And um, in, in its most extreme, they wear purity rings as if they were an engagement ring. There are purity dances with their fathers in which they promise to stay pure until marriage. Um, and they are inculcated in the inherent evil of their bodies and the sinfulness of their sexuality except within the confines of heterosexual marriage. And what does that do to the young girl who has been brainwashed into those ideas? Well, she certainly learns to think of um, of her body as an occasion for sin. And needing to repress any of her natural urgings or longings. Um, And in those who are, in many cases, um, forced to be sexual against their will, um, they regard themselves sinful and carry that shame with them, perhaps for the rest of their lives. 
And I can imagine the idea of sexual pleasure is maybe not even something that enters their mind without shame or guilt. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, you wrote uh, you wrote that the way feminist spirituality uh, is grounded in the imminence. Um, of the divine is healing and restorative for women's historical trauma. I want you to talk about that a little bit, but first define imminence. Oh, thank you. Um, yes, so in contrast, the traditional view of the divine of God is of, of a being who is separate and apart from humanity and the earth living somewhere, dwelling somewhere in a celestial heaven. Um, and for some reason, we think of heaven as being way above us. <laughs> um, and in, a, in contrast to that, the, the immanental divine, um, that's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T-A-L, um, is in everything and every being on earth that is the earth itself, uh, it is the belief that everything and everyone alive carries within them divine energy, um, including ourselves. There's a beautiful quote by Ntozaki Shang, uh, where she said, I found God in myself and I loved her. I loved her fiercely. So that notion that everything that is alive with divine energy, um, that, that's the notion of imminence. Okay. And um, so what do you mean by the, uh, you know, how this in particular, this imminence of the divine um, helps toward women's um, healing this historical trauma? Connect the dots, right. please. Sure, sure. Well, before the witch burnings, um, the imminence of the divine was widely recognized, was worshipped, was celebrated. Um, it's it's spring everywhere but here where it's still snowing um, but most places in the northern hemisphere it's spring and there were all kinds of festivals for the earth coming alive finding human in nature um, in some ways I mean the celebration of Easter is in many ways that celebration of Estra the goddess Estra the goddess of spring um, uh, we find it in in May Day celebrations, which are hearkening back to the ancient Celtic traditions of Beltane, of, again, the earth coming alive with that growth. Um, so, and the, just the celebration of the solstices and the equinox, uh, the, whole, the whole earth being alive with divine energy and recognized as divine in itself um, was very much a part of those pagan cultures uh, where the witch burnings first took place and so uh, so any hearkening back to, to any healing of the kind of spiritual trauma that took place with the burning times needs to begin with recognizing that the divine that the earth and all beings within the earth and of the earth um, carry within them divinity and that it's 
that it's okay to believe this and not only to believe this but to um to infuse oneself with the energy of that earth as human um but also um the the notion of a transcendent male divinity was really startling and new to these peasant populations um and but it was part of a male hierarchical authority structure that was so damaging to the women um and so that if so one thing that that the male authorities the hierarchical authorities had to do was to to encourage a disbelief in the spirit that was present in the earth so that people had to rely on priests and the church for access to a transcendent god um more than that it had tremendous effects on how we treat the earth um if the earth and all beings on the earth were considered to be dead in the sense of not having spiritual energy then the earth could be mined it could be drilled into it could be deforested it could be poisoned it could the waters could be dammed and dredged and straightened and treated as sewers um so it had that effect on our access to those inspirited um trees and waters um it split the spirit from the body and the earth that was one of the main things that happened with the witch burnings that um that you have that dualism that that dichotomy that split that happened between spirit and earth and body and so everything associated with the body and the earth which was women indigenous colonized others the lgbtq population all of that uh, could be treated uh, also as rapeable um as uh, as a thing so reclaiming the immanence of the divine is radical it's restorative that the spiritual healing that happens um that can happen through the immanent divine through a feminine divine through an earth-centered divine um through restoring the sacredness of the earth of women's bodies women's beings women's wisdom all of that um is requires also embracing the immanence of the divine and recognizing that our bodies our beings are not the source of evil and sin in the world but rather a, a dwelling of sacredness and only with taking that in can you begin to heal from the long long repeated message that our bodies and our beings are evil wrong um it takes it takes bringing in that that energy that belief and it needs to be really brought in and um digested um incarnated literally into the body to bring about some of that healing and Does and also that, that the earth is not yeah yeah it it does and and i mean i think people might have to chew on that a little bit 
Um, you know, if this is the first time they've they've heard it, but you know, it's also and, and you said it, but you know, the earth would not be a commodity then. Right. Um, right. And and you know, and we we just uh, you know here on the show the last few weeks, I've been taking one of each of Carol Chris' four points of why women need mm-hmm. the goddess. And the top one was um, about recognizing themselves in a feminine face of God, how that changes the psychology of a woman, you know, so that she's not submissive and small and all of these things that patriarchy demands uh, that she be. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in that Carol Chris piece. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so much to unpack. But but um, did you want to say any more about that, you know, about how losing a feminine face of God, um, you know, started this, um, this uh, well, you know, I, I'll just say it. It feels like it robbed women of their, of everything that, that they could, could potentially be. Mm, yeah, you're so right, Karen. Um, it's so important. Um, when with the divine figured only as male, um, women can never see themselves in in anything approaching divinity. Um, and I mean, the feminine face of God uh, that was a part of cultures around the world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years um, and em- embraced the power of women, um, power in a good way. I think we've actually even changed the notion of power in this country by associating with domination, but I'm talking about the empowerment, the energy, the, the, the beauty, the goodness of, of women. Well, what Carol Chris says, the female power is benevolent um, and recognizing that is a good thing um, only comes from also identifying, being able to identify yourself in the face of the divine. And yeah, uh, yeah. so yes, I think you were right yeah. that being deprived of that has robbed women. On the other hand, if you look at what happened um, particularly around Europe, after that was um, that was the feminine face of God supposedly was demolished and put into a transcendent male deity. Instead, you have cathedral after cathedral after cathedral built in honor of Mary. Usually, in places where there had been places of worship for the goddess. Right. So it's a pretty persistent need. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like, you know, no matter how hard the patriarchy tries, they can't obliterate the need for the mother. However, right. you know, and, and I'm, I'm willing to, to stand corrected if you disagree, but it feels like patriarchy will allow us to have the benign Mary, the intercessor oh, yeah. uh, between us and the real God up in the heavens, because remember, she doesn't mm-hmm. have God status either. 
either. Um, they'll, they'll, right. they'll, they'll allow us that, you know, but uh, the Morrigan, Kali, Sekhmet, uh, you know, even, um, you know, uh, Kuan Yin with all of, you know, you see her mm-hmm. in, in the aspect of canon in Asia with, you know, all of her hands and in all of her hands are her tools and in a lot of cases those tools are weapons, but, but they're not a sword, they're a pen or a book you know, for, you know, for sharing knowledge and writing and all of this. Um, I, I don't think patriarchy really wants us to have the fullness of the sacred feminine. That's too scary yeah. for them. Yeah, and I appreciate you adding that in. I have read a lot lately about the rebellious face of Mary, but you're right, it's not one that um, that patriarchy advertises <laughs> Right. Yeah. The, the, the well, and you know, I would like gospel obedient Mary. Yes. Yeah. Well, well and that's the way. I mean, as a Catholic, I mean, as a Catholic, that's who how I grew mm-hmm. up seeing her. I mean, I don't think I realized uh, when I was younger that she was docile and obedient. You know, I I, mm-hmm. I I understood that later, but in an effort to reclaim her. Um, you know, I, I feel like she lived under the yoke of Roman oppression. And, you know, if there really was a Jesus, maybe he learned social justice at her knee, you know? Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so the other, uh, the other reasons Carol Christ said women need the goddess, and mm-hmm. I encourage people to, to Google that, why women need the goddess, and go to her essay. Right. Well, we are, the second one was to affirm the female body and its life cycles, and you spoke to that a bit, um, you know, about how the body is, um, you mm-hmm. know, evil and, uh, and the life cycle. I mean, I, I even read somewhere, I think it might have been in Christina Biaggi's anthology, Rule of Mores, I think one of the essayists said um, that they believed one of the reasons uh, patriarchy uh, wanted to do away with goddess was because of the life cycles of, you know, that they had to actually face death. Uh, and rebirth. Instead, they wanted to sit on the right hand of God and live forever in the heavens. So it was mm-hmm. their way of cheating death. Um, I, th- I found that rather interesting. Yeah, the the goddess that has been worshipped around the world, uh, the great goddess, is considered to be both the bringer of life and death. And uh, so, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, then the third reason women needed the goddess was the affirmations of women's will. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, what, did, what did she mean by that? If you can just give a brief thumbnail, uh, that women should be able to have an opinion, that women should be able to speak out and be heard? That women, uh, that women's, um, well, uh, just a couple of places I want to go with that. Uh, willfulness in general has been conceived of by um, the church as as wrong that you should, that that it is a disobedience to God's will. If you put your own will ahead of God's will, that is considered a, a wrongful, a sinful willfulness. But so I think the notion of will um, has negative connotations in this culture. 
So Mm -hmm. to consider a positive valuing of will, that we have um, not not just desires, but but wishes that we have, uh, that we are agents in the world, that we have those things that we need to do and want to do and accomplish in our lives and and among the as part of that is a rebelliousness against acquiescence and domination and oppression and to see that as a good thing um mm-hmm. that um uh, that I mean, that's that's what's underneath feminist activism um the desire to bring about change and and so rather than Women were taught to be submissive, to to deny their will, to be obedient, to be subordinate. Um, but they had to be taught that um, or punished for expressing that because we all have uh, ways that we want, that we have our own destiny to fulfill in the world. And... Uh, and so just enacting that oftentimes requires acts of great courage, um, the things that we are told we can't do because we are women, that we are not allowed to do, that we are not allowed to say because we are women, the vocations from which we are cut off, the just the, <laughs> I mean, to the, the most obvious example being that there is no um, female president yet in this country, um, that that is something that that I think it's going to be really difficult in this country for any woman to pursue something that requires so much willfulness as to become a leader uh, in in any field. So, um, but to recognize that as a good thing, and that what women want is valid. Yeah. Well, and I can't help but remember. Um, when some women were running for high office, you had other women say they couldn't vote for a woman because uh, women were too hysterical, uh, you know, during that time of the month. I mean, that's just a great example of the brainwashing and gaslighting that's happened it's to women. Very much you know? a legacy. Yeah. And it ties and into the fourth sure reason. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I want to hear about hysterical. I'm sure you you know that the the term hysterical comes from Latin word hyster for for womb. Um, That's how we get the word hysterectomy for the removal of the womb. And hysterectomies were once, not that long ago, I believe, um, cures, supposed cures for hysteria. Hysterectomies. Yes. Wow. I did not know that. Remove the hysteria. Yeah, the source of the wow. hysteria is the womb. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. I gotta. I gotta make a mental note of that one. Um, <laughs> well, and then the the, the fourth reason uh, Carol Christ mm-hmm. says uh, why women need the goddess: the affirmation of women's bonds with one another. And you briefly touched mm-hmm. on that during the burning times women would yeah. have to or felt they had to turn on one another mm-hmm. what does that look like in in the contemporary world though beth um i think women 
compete with each other. Uh, women badmouth each other, gossip about each other. Um, if until, I should say until, they have a feminist understanding of the value of feminine friendship and learn to trust each other. Um, I've had I've had so many conversations with with women who didn't have any really good trusting relationships with other women until they discovered feminism, until they realized that uh, they could trust other women, that other women weren't out to undermine them, um, whether uh, for men or for jobs or for who could be the 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 best beauty queen or the best mother or you know some any of the stereotype roles um the best cook <laughs> um, or get the best or so, get the best husband out there catch the best right man. <laughs> right yeah 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 i mean with, without without that how could there possibly be a women's movement a feminist movement um which is one reason why um it has been so important to by the uh, patriarchs to continue to blast that message um that that legacy of not trust not don't trust other women um and why feminists have been labeled labeled by the Russian limbaughs of the world um as witches <laughs> just to, or to keep that right just to keep that that little bit of subtle awareness that's been lingering around for hundreds of years in people's in women's minds and consciousness. Well, and you know, one other thing I want to say before I ask you about the indigenous um, focused mm-hmm. uh, trauma therapy is, you know, I can't help but in a way equate this burning times subject to uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Now, I know the TV oh, series yeah. kind of took some creative license and went beyond the first book and they're just catching up to the the, the sequel. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about how the women betrayed one another. I'm thinking about those mm-hmm. scenes where the women, you know, certain women were relegated to nothing but breeders. The women right. couldn't right. read or write. Um, and and th- that horrific scene where in some cities they literally sewed their lips shut. Uh, and, you know, it made me think about women's will, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, really, I, if people have not watched The Handmaid's Tale, they really do have to watch it. Uh, but I have to tell you, you know, some of those series, um, even though I knew a lot of this, it took a while for me to process everything I saw. And, and it wasn't even as, uh, you know, we hadn't lost Roe yet. You know, uh, right. it, you know, it it it, it feels <clears throat> like things have gotten worse for women, obviously, instead of better. And I yeah. can't help but <clears throat> look at The Handmaid's Tale and go, this could be us. Because the reason The Handmaid's Tale was written, you know, I mean, according to Atwood, who based a lot of the abuses that women suffered on actual abuses that happened around the world, not stuff she made up out of her head, right. was right. a small group of people created a coup and took over the country in a matter of two weeks 
I think it was. And look what we just lived through with Donald Trump. How close did we come to the beginning of The Handmaid's Tale? You know, when women's bank accounts were taken away and they couldn't go to work and they were relegated, you know, breeder or, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it just felt like The Handmaid's Tale was way too close to home. In many ways, I think of what happened to the women in Afghanistan who were quite westernized and and lived very much the lives of women in this country and and then the Taliban took over and now they they yeah. live the lives maybe not specifically of the of the handmaid's tale but but shrouded and silenced and not yeah. allowed to Darn close. school not allowed to practice their professions so yes we're not all that far away it could easily happen right <clears throat> Well, last question for you, Beth, and I really do appreciate this um, this rich, rich conversation. Um, so you mentioned that one strategy and tool for here, healing from the historical trauma is indigenous-focusing-oriented trauma therapy. That's a mouthful. What is it? <laughs> it is. It is. That's why we call it IFOT. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Yes. So I I was privileged to uh, be trained in this by indigenous elders from British Columbia and um, fortunately it it piggybacks on previous trauma training I had in somatic experiencing somatic experience in trauma therapy um, which recognizes that trauma lives in the very cells of our bodies and that healing must occur at the bodily level at the somatic level and but what I loved about the indigenous approach, um, it's a very decolonized approach to trauma therapy. And one of the main things was the, rec- the different understanding of time. That what what they called all time is now, past, present, and future all exist simultaneously. So that in healing our lives in the present, we are also healing ancestral trauma. We can help heal our ancestors. Um, and we can find helpers in our ancestors. Um, also, in the indigenous approach, there is a recognition of all beings as our relatives, um, of um, all our healers being in the earth, the water, the four-legged, um, that medicine may be in a stone, it might be in a plant, it might be in the waters, and so it also taps us into those various, much wider sources of healing in our lives, recognizing our relatedness, our capacity for healing, which taps back into the the imminence of the divine, uh, which has always been the case in indigenous religions, um, and restores what was taken from us in the burning times. Um, and um, Shirley Turk, I'll just add just in with this one thing. Shirley Turcott, who was the um, indigenous elder who who founded IFOT and the and the practice, um, herself said that healing from intergenerational trauma requires moving between those dimensions of time with kindness and grace. And I think that just says it beautifully. But that's what that particular <clears throat> process does. 
So is this similar to what some people are calling uh, healing, the healing modality of uh, ancestral trauma healing? It has a lot of similarities, but it's also its own unique thing. Yes, I've done ancestral trauma healing as well. Um, So yes, it has a lot of parallels. Okay. Yeah, but it's but it's also very focused in the body, and the the very technical details of that would take a whole other, you know, that's that's something I get it. It took a training to understand, but yeah, but it's very much okay. focused on understanding what's going on in the body and letting the body lead the healing. Okay. Um, well, people can look that up themselves. Um, ancestral yeah. trauma versus um, what did you call uh, yours? Uh, indigenous focusing oriented trauma therapy. Correct. Beth, I um, uh, it's been wonderful this hour, and I want to leave you with a final word if you have one. Oh, I think we've covered a lot, and I know we're close out of time, <laughs> but I guess I would just. Um, um, encourage people to um, to understand the legacy of the burning times and how it continues to the present day, um, but also that there are sources of healing and that in that healing there is so much possibility for restoration of the goodness of the female, the feminine, the feminine divine in the world, and that that will bring healing, I would hope, to all of us and the earth. And best books, best books, Beth, um, that you might recommend uh, if you were going to pick one? Oh, if I were going to pick one. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a hard question. Uh, I might have to email you about that. Um but certainly any of Carol Christ's books, any of that, um, okay. would, but also uh, um, there's a book called The Witch Craze, uh, any of Starhawk's books, um, I would encourage readers to read those. Um, I will think about that more <laughs> and, and uh, I can send you a list. Okay. Yeah, and if and I, I will put it on uh, on my website with our interview if you um, if you want to send me a few books. For sure, Thank and you, the, the one I just mentioned. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I will do oh, that. No, go ahead. The Thank one you, you just Karen. mentioned. The one, well, the the, the um, one that just came out um, in defense of witches. So. Okay. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. I I appreciate all of your knowledge shared today. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Good to be with you. Have a good day. You too. So I was talking to Beth Bartlett, uh, Ph.D. Uh, She's a professor uh, emerita of women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth, author of numerous books and articles, including Journey of the Heart, Spiritual Insights on the Road to a Transplant, Rebellious Feminism, uh, uh, Camus' Ethic of Rebellion and Feminist Thought, and Making Waves, uh, Grassroots Feminism in Duluth and Superior. Uh, She's been active in feminist peace and justice and rights of nature and climate justice movements. And she's been... um, 
a committed advocate for water protectors. Um, such a delight. Um, I am going to be back in just a minute, uh, but please uh, have a listen to Joe Carson. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a Gardnerian High Priest of the Whitecroft line, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher, writing about Joe Carson's book, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. I love this book, how special this work is, and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s, and through the years only found snippets of information on Feriferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background, philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Feriferia's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Feriferia. Celebrate Wildness is a dense, art book quality hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Feriferia website at feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. Well, you might have heard me say um, I consider and considered uh, myself a savvy, educated uh, person and advocate uh, for peace, fairness, equality. Um, I actually thought abuse was something that happened to others, not me, Uh, but it was happening to me. Uh, I was asleep at the wheel, didn't see uh, the danger signs, and uh, it really made me reflect and uh, realize that abuse and the resulting trauma can happen to anyone regardless of age, race, gender identity, beliefs, economic status. You know, we have to examine all aspects of our lives for both blatant and insidious abuse. We must recognize it and take steps to eradicate abuse from our lives and in society. And I would just ask you um, to really be honest. Do you make excuses and rationalize abuse uh, because it's so familiar that you just discount it as being normal or it's just the way it is? Well, um, I would ask you to please uh, go look at my book, Normalizing Abuse. It's a commentary on our um, culture of pervasive abuse, and um, it's new out there uh, only recently. Um, You can get it at all the usual places. You can find it through my website, karentate.net. Go directly to Goodreads, Amazon, um, order it from your local bookseller, whatever is your preference. Um, The foreword is by Matthew Fox, um, a wonderful educator and theologian. Um, 
who's very interested in, uh, in, in social justice in the world. Uh, you know, we talked today about um, the remnants we all have from the burning times and uh, other horrific things that have happened, not just to ourselves, to our ancestors, and we carry that with us. And I talk a bit about that in Normalizing Abuse. Um, I talk about my personal journey and my realizations and aha moments. Um, and um, I talk about whistleblowers. I talk about sin eaters. Uh, I talk about the abuse that happens in academia, on the job, in religion, corporations, family and friends, society and culture, uh, the media, uh, government, you know, so many different aspects of our life, the things that just happen on an everyday basis that we don't even blink an eye at anymore. And we should, we need to. Uh, I also offer ideas about how to recognize if you're experiencing trauma and um, some healing modalities as well that uh, helped me and helped others. Um, so I guess you could say it. Uh, normalizing abuse is a book where alternative spirituality, self-help, and uh, personal transformation meet, and social justice. So anyway, um, I hope you'll give my book a look. And uh, if you do pick it up, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'd love to have you write a review or um, write an essay and... Uh, you know, help me put the word out there because we have to examine all aspects of our lives and society and eradicate this epidemic of abuse, whether it's uh, blatant or insidious. And insidious abuse is still abuse. Well, thank you, listeners, uh, for being with me today. And um, I look forward to uh, talking to you again next Wednesday. And please, uh, please do share word of the show. And uh, you can go to uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine on Blog Talk, and uh, you will see the opportunity there to subscribe to the show. And if you do that, <clears throat> you will get an email in your inbox once a week uh, telling you about that week's show and uh, making it simple, you know, to just click click on the email and it will take you right to the show and you can listen. All right, uh, that about does it. And uh, we'll close with uh, Sepmet, the Lady of Tenacity Manifested, the lion-headed Egyptian goddess who helps women be strong, courageous, and say no without guilt. Mm-hmm.